welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is Dr. Aziz Ghazipura, who is a clinical psychologist and one of the world's leading confidence experts. He teaches people how to rapidly learn confidence so they can eliminate social anxiety and self-doubt, master conversations, accelerate in their careers, and create deeply fulfilling relationships. After struggling with crippling shyness and social anxiety, uh, personally, for over a decade, Dr. Aziz became determined to find a way to freedom. He completed his doctoral training at Stanford and Palo Alto Universities and is the founder of the Center for Social Confidence. He is also the author of four best-selling books, including his most popular book, Not Nice. So as you can probably guess, we're going to be talking about confidence. Just a couple words from Dr. Aziz. One of this is a, a quote that he shared that I really enjoyed. He said, Honest, honesty or authenticity is not this very simplistic thing of I say whatever I want to whoever I want, however I want, and they have to learn how to take it. We want to have a level of sophistication. Ah, good stuff. So we're going to be talking about confidence, how it shows up, what blocks us from being able to maintain that level of confidence to develop it, how we curate it for ourselves. Uh, Dr. Aziz shares his own definition. I share a little bit about mine. Uh, we dive into what prevents people from being within a, an authentic uh, way of living their lives and making powerful decisions for themselves so that they can be more confident. And Dr. Aziz shares some very specific steps that you can take and start to implement in your life to level up your own individual sense of confidence. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. Uh, make sure that you share it with somebody that you know will enjoy it. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review and subscribe on whatever channel that you are listening to us on. Uh, don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you are listening to this on uh, so that you can get updates and notifications about future episodes. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. And let's dive in without any further delay. Welcome, Dr. Aziz. I'm doing well. I'm glad to be here, man. Looking forward to talk with you. Awesome, man. Well, let's get things kicked off. Tell me a defining moment. Tell me a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. This is a question that I ask all my guests to get things rolling. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's sort of a dramatic moment that I often tell, like a turnaround be you know from the bottom i'm going to change my life moment but i'm actually going to tell the moment before that moment which is maybe you know not the glamorous thing that we talk about but you know i was a young man i was in my early 20s and i'd spent pretty much since the age of 10 or 11 with pretty intense social anxiety to where i wouldn't talk to people that i didn't know um certainly wouldn't speak up in groups didn't approach women to date. I didn't really date much in that 10-year period. And I, I lived a pretty small life. I had maybe one or two close friends, played a lot of video games, went to work, went to school, you, you know, smoked pot, and uh, kept my life pretty small and contained. But once every blue moon, I would work up the courage and the confidence to ask someone out. And you know, at that age, for me, that was probably one of the biggest areas I wish I had confidence in. And so I remember that I, there was this woman that I met and, and we got partnered in some lab together. Like once a week, there was this lab class for chemistry or something. So it was like, you know, 20 people in this room and you got partners and I was partnered with her. And I was like, aha, you know, fantastic opportunity. And so, you know, once I could 
be in that space with someone. I, I could sort of be myself and connected some. And then I thought, okay, I'm, you know, this is an opportunity I want to ask her out. But I didn't ask her out because I was terrified of rejection. And then there was the larger lecture, not the lab, when I had like 20 people, but the larger lecture, it had like 400 people in there, chemistry one or whatever it was. And it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday for 45 or 50 minutes, three days a week. And I spent basically the entire quarter, every Monday, every Wednesday, every Friday, going to this class, just looking around the room of like you know, 400 people to see if I could see her. And then maybe I would some days, maybe I wouldn't. And the story that, oh, today was the day I was going to talk to her. And that must've gone on for six to seven weeks. Hmm. And multiple times I'd be leaving the class and I'd see her and I'd want to go talk to her and I'd be too scared. And, you know, this might sound like sort of a relatable story, like, oh, I'm afraid to approach someone. But this was just a window into like my whole life. And, and it was a life of being unwilling and unable to take risks. And the story gets worse in that I actually did find the courage to ask her out. And she actually did say yes. So you might think that was going well, but what ended up happening is we spent, we went on a date. I thought we had a, what I believe was a fantastic time together. She happened to be going out of town for a month or something. It was the beginning of summer or whatever. And then she came back into town and had absolutely no interest in me. I was just in no way engaged, no way connected. And for me, that was just utterly devastating because it was like, this is the chance I got. And, uh, and my opportunities were, again, once in a blue moon. So this was in the phase before things were going to change in my life for the better and, you know, radically. But this was just one little window into a life of social anxiety. And that's what I you know, hear from and see in people all the time. And it's a sort of a quiet, invisible life of suffering. I think that's a significant moment in my life because it just shows, you know, where I, where I lived and, and the, and the pain that needed to build up for me to finally, finally make a real and lasting change. Appreciate you sharing that. I mean, I think it is relatable. I think a lot of people, especially a lot of young men I've noticed really struggle with social anxiety. I don't think it's necessarily a, a young man thing. I think that we just have more liberties to talk about it generally now. And it's more commonplace for men to share their experience than, than maybe 50 or 60 years ago when the term social anxiety maybe didn't wasn't very prominent within modern male lingo. But you've since become a clinical psychologist. Tell, tell us a little bit about what causes social anxieties to happen. Like what are some of the not indicators, but what lays the groundwork for social anxiety to show up in our lives? Because I think what we're seeing with the pandemic and with lockdown mm. and everything, which you know, I think we'll talk about later and how that infringes on our, our our ability to be confident, our ability to approach people, our ability to to just connect with other human beings, not even in a, a sexual or dating fashion. But I'm curious from your perspective, what are some of those primary pieces that play into to building the foundation of social anxiety? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And it's really interesting because I have two kids, they're five and seven, and I can see, especially in my seven-year-old, some of the early underpinnings that could turn into social anxiety. And these are sort of the underlying factors that create the conditions. They don't necessarily make that happen. So Social anxiety is is a pattern. People, you know, because it has a name, and in the clinical psychology it has a diagnosis, which is just social anxiety disorder. Side note: almost all the psychiatric diagnoses 
are just descriptive labels. So like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, right? It's like, all it's saying is like, you're like, you go to that psychiatrist, you're like, I have problems with attention. And they're like, ah, here's your diagnosis, problems with attention disorder. You know, so it's sometimes we, we infuse them with so much solidity as if it, this is who I am and this is what it is. And I always tell people social anxiety is just a pattern. And why do we do that pattern? And first of all, to, to define that pattern, that pattern is an assumption, negative or judgmental responses from others, aka they're not going to like you. They're not going to like me. And then all the stuff that we do as a result of that, I avoid talking to you if I think you're not going to like me. I avoid asking you out if I think you're going to reject me. And or people will kind of make themselves do it with like a huge amount of fear and anxiety and stress and the turmoil about it. So that's the pattern of social anxiety. And the question is like, well, where does that come from? Why would someone do that pattern? Well, there's a couple of underpinnings. One is people that develop social anxiety tend to, when they're younger, be sensitive as kids. And that could be sensory sensitivities. Sounds are louder. Things taste more intensely. Bright lights might be brighter. The tactile, you know, you know, one of my kids, if there's a tag on his shirt, I don't like tags either, but he'll, he'll like freak out if there's a tag touching him, right? So, but they're also more sensitive often to emotion, their own emotion, feeling their own emotion, other people's emotion, more empathic. Empaths tend to be more sensitive. So usually there's, there's some level of that in, in a lot of people. Um, and then with that, there's also another quality, which is risk aversion. So they're maybe perhaps because they feel more, someone saying no to them, someone, even someone, you know, furrowing their brow at them feels more intense or uncomfortable. And so there's more of a calculating, is this safe or not? I don't, I don't want to take these risks. Hmm. And so those two things can start to lead to an avoidance pattern. And the avoidance pattern might be like, well, that's uncomfortable. I'll move away from it. That's uncomfortable. I'll move away from it. And what can start to happen is if there's an avoidance pattern, this, the sensitivities, avoidance sensitivities, you avoid it. The more you avoid it, the bigger it gets. And if left unchecked, you know, stories can start to develop. Usually identity stories around 11, 10, 11 years old about am, am I likable or not? You know, no, I'm not. I'm not likable. I'm different. I'm weird. I'm awkward. All those kinds of things. And once those get locked in, someone can carry those stories with them and therefore the patterns of social anxiety for 75 years, like their whole lives, really, and until they really, you know, systematically challenge and change that. Yeah, I think it's interesting because what I hear you somewhat saying is that we we fear not belonging in some capacity or not being allowed to belong, whether that's within our family system or school environment like you were describing or or with somebody that we're attracted to. And then because of that, because of that fear of not belonging, we start to create these like future-based mental constructs and stories about what could potentially happen because from my understanding anxiety whether it's social or or whatever the you know precursor for the anxiety is that anxiety is very much a future-based experience that we get caught in these sort of mind ruminations of something that's going to happen or could happen whether it's in the sort of like very near future or it's something that's going to happen tomorrow or something that's going to happen a year from now or like 50 years from now. And, and then we get stuck in that mental pattern. And I'm curious from your, from your perspective. So the first part, there's that. The second thing that, that 
I think I heard you say is that we can kind of adopt these labels as an identity. And I think that's something that I've seen a lot as more people become educated in therapeutic modalities and terminologies. I see a lot of people like pathologize, like their their identity becomes this like conglomeration pathologies, you know, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on have we reached a threshold where those labels have not have become not supportive for us or it, where where do we find a balance between understanding okay that's a behavioral pattern right social anxiety is a behavioral pattern and i can view that behavior i can work on that behavior and that behavior doesn't need to become who i am so i'm curious to get your take on like when we feel like we fall into these categories, whether it's social anxiety or ADHD. Like I, you know, I was given the diagnosis of ADD when I was a kid. And that very much became a huge part of my identity as, you know, a grade five student, right? I was like the ADD kid that had yeah. Ritalin. And I was like the only kid in my school that had Ritalin. So it was like very interesting to see how people interacted with me because of that. Whereas now today, I mean, most kids, not most, but many kids are, you know, ADD or they have an EpiPen or they have, you know, some form of social anxiety or some disorder. And so it's much more commonplace. And so how do we find the balance between using these labels to label the behaviors and then educating people on being able to not necessarily move through that, but to not allow that label to become such a huge cornerstone of their identity? Yeah. Or should we? Oh my gosh. This is such great questions here. I, I have a lot of perspectives on this having gone through. So what I do now is in the coaching realm. I'm a teacher and a coach and I lead groups and it's very transformation based. Like I truly believe you can upgrade or transform your identity. You are not this socially anxious person that sort of has to manage that for your whole life. You, you can really change this. And that that sort of stance is in opposition to a lot of what I got in my training in mm -hmm. clinical psychology, which was very deterministic. And a part of, the, you know, part of the, the, the areas for improvement that we want to look at here, um, part of it is in, the, is in the communication of the term, of the diagnosis. So from a different field, from psychiatry or psychology, but um, I learned a lot about mind-body medicine. And uh, I was I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition. I had chronic pain starting at the age of 15. And I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition at the age of 19 and then given a medicine that suppressed the symptoms. It was an immunosuppressant, so it had could have pretty severe side effects. But for my life quality, I needed to take it. Now, at first, it's relieving. At first, it's like, oh, okay, you got the thing, you got the diagnosis, you got the pills, you got the, okay, we're safe, right? But then that very diagnosis can become the cage that traps you. Because now I believe I have ankylosing spondylitis for my life. And I believe in the prognosis. So what's being communicated with the diagnosis? Because embedded in the diagnosis, there is where it comes from, its origins, why you have it, and what the prognosis is for it, and how you treat it. Like that's all kind of packaged in there. And the problem is a lot of these diagnoses, they don't just have one proposed origin. They just don't have one solution. And some solutions are, are way better than others. So I discovered, you know, Dr. S uh, John Sarno and these other physicians and teachers who taught sort of mind-body approaches, and their, their treatment approach was a lot better. It was much more effective. I completely freed myself, got off all these medications that were having side effects for me. 
So that one's much better, but I didn't know about that at all. And one of the teachers, Dr. David Schechter, talks about this in one of his books called um, Think Away Your Pain, where he says he's very intentional when, he, when people come get an x-ray from him for their spine. Because sometimes the doctor will say, you have scoliosis, you have this, you have that. You know, you have a bulging disc three or whatever. And the person's like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> my spine's ruined. And <laughs> what he's very careful to say is, you know, you have this going on we see in the MRI and your spine. You know, that's pretty typical. We like, we call those the gray hairs of the spine. As people age, they demonstrate these kinds of things. And that's not, you know, the source of your pain. So just that little shift in how it's communicated changes everything. Hmm. So I, I'm very intentional about that. I'd actually, when I work with people, because I'm not even doing clinical work anymore, I don't diagnose anything. But even when I did do clinical work, I was very clear if we did diagnose how to communicate that in a way that helped the person have a sense of what was going on, but also gave them a huge amount of possibility to change this, to transform this, to heal this, because you are not fixed. So I think that's a, that's a big part of it. And I think many people are kind of, unfortunately, trained to be very passive in their own healing. Mm. And they sort of assume that the, that the doctor knows what's best and knows what is right, and, and what they say is true. And having been in the, the field of psychology, clinical psychology, and which is very closely parallel to psychiatry, and then having my own personal experiences with broader health and medicine, the doctor is providing you with the best information they have based upon their training and experience. It may be true. It may not be true. It may serve you. It may deter you, the quality of your life. It may hinder you. It may be iatrogenic which means that the treatment has a harmful effect on the patient. Huge amounts. It's what's the, I believe it's the second or third leading cause of death in America, but it's not listed on the leading causes of death, but it is iatrogenic. It is death from mixed prescriptions. It is death from medical procedures. So what we want to do is we want to become educated like in every area, whether it's your finances, your fitness, raising your kids, your health, like ultimately, we are the captain. And you, I am the captain of my own ship. You are the captain of it. Every single person has got to be responsible. And of course, we use experts. I mean, you know, my, my wife had a cesarean section birth, especially for our first son. We were going to do this hippie home birth. And, you know, it, it didn't go so well. So I'm super grateful. And there's, there's some amazing procedures out there and amazing treatments. But you got to know, you got to be like a wise consumer. Mm. And that, you know, that unfortunately takes people kind of maybe getting, maybe getting, buffeted around a little bit until they say, wait a minute, hold on a second. I got to, I got to figure this out for myself. Yeah. Well, well said. I think that's, you know, really spot on. Thank you for that. Cause I think what I've seen is a lot of men that have come and worked with me over the years, having gone to therapists or psychologists or whatever the case may be, and they come in with this sort of laundry list, their not symptoms, but the, the, the diagnoses, right? Yeah. The like, this is what I've been told is wrong with me. <laughs> Just so you know, <laughs> it's like, okay, all right, well, let's, let's know that those things are behavioral patterns yeah. that, that we can, most of them, that we can actually move, move through and that that's the work that we're here to do and to empower you. So, so let's talk about the two pieces. One, how do we as individuals start to work towards unraveling that pattern of social anxiety? Like, what did that look like for you? How did you start to combat that? And what do you recommend for people who are dealing with that? Because I think, and I would love for you to take maybe a two-pronged approach. One, 
how do we as individuals who are struggling with social anxiety navigate that? And how do we as partners support people who are dealing with social anxiety? Because I get that question a lot. Like, how do I support my partner? She or he has social anxiety. You know, what, what do I need to know? So if you could just touch on both those sides, and then I would love to move into confidence after. Yeah, fantastic. You mean like intimate partner when you ask that question? Yeah. Right? Okay, right. Okay, great. Well, I've been obsessed with this subject since I was 21 and maybe about a year, two years, maybe more after that story I started with, I reached this threshold moment of like, I have, I have to do something or else my life is going to be this. And, um, that's, I'm so grateful that I reached that level of pain and I became obsessed. So it's been almost 39 now. So it's been about 18 years. So I have so many nuances, but I also am always looking at like, how do you distill it in the most simple way? And it really comes down to two things are the key components. And then of course you can go as granular as you want, but the two things to, to transform social anxiety and, and, and uh, free ourselves and then build more confidence is bold action and almost or on my own side. Those are the two pieces. So if we're willing to consistently take actions that are uncomfortable, that ultimately challenge the predictions. You talked about the anxiety being predictions of the future. When it comes to social anxiety, it's a bad prediction. If I do X, Y is going to happen. Mm. I'm going to be judged. They're going to say no, this or that's going to happen. And we have to, in order to liberate ourselves from social anxiety, we have to face that, take the action, and we have to do it consistently. I talk about in the group program that I run, I talk about immediate action and consistent action, and both are necessary. So someone listening to this podcast, if they go do something right after this, that's immediate action. And that is a sign that you're really ready to make a change. But if you did it once or twice, you're probably not going to change your life. But if you consistently do something, then that will change because what's going to happen is your identity will start to, the old one will start to crumble. You'll say, oh, I'm, I'm the shy person and no one, no one wants to interact with me. And if you consistently approach people, you will find that's actually not true. Now, of course, to support in that, there are skills you can learn because a lot of people have avoided this stuff. So that's why I teach conversation skills and you know basic stuff from like how to start the conversation to more how do you deeply connect and all that stuff that supplements that. But that's all under the umbrella of action. And so you know we want to test out the stories of our mind and see what is really so. And then of course, you know, fortune favors the bold. So if you go for something, if you ask someone out, if you do whatever, you're, you are eventually going to get yeses. You're eventually going to succeed in that area. So that's the result. And then all of a sudden you say, wait a minute, I, I, then we get that self-efficacy side of confidence. Like, oh, I can make things happen. I am a cause in the world, not just a buoy that's floating in the, in the ocean. So that's the, the bold action side. That's what I personally started with, you know. I remember I was like a 20, 21 year old man. Like I never dated really in my life. And I was like, I got to get a girlfriend. So I'm, you know, looking up stuff online and some of it's kind of pickup artist stuff. That's a little, ultimately not the best foundation to start a relationship on. It's a little more, more immature, masculine and manipulative. But a lot of what I discovered was very just like solid. Hey, build your confidence. You know, what do you think of yourself? Do you think you're dateable? Be better. Go, go, go talk to women. And, and it was so helpful for me. And, and it got me out there. I mean, I was so desperate. I was willing to, to do it. I always tell people like, okay, the pain of staying the same was like this big. 
So all of a sudden the pain of rejection seemed like that big. So I was willing to do it. And I remember hearing an interview with Sean Stevenson, who I absolutely love. He's an amazing teacher. And he said, it was like, you know, every time you're scared and you act with courage, you get like, you get a confidence point. And it's just me having had a history in video games. I was like, okay, all right, build some EXP, you know, go fight some rats <laughs> in the woods. I got you. So kind of level up style. So I just started to do that. And I was utterly terrified. And, and so it was, it was effective, but I, I was missing the other piece. And the other side, you know, think of like a bird, you know, you got to have two wings and it's not going to fly well. And the action is just one wing. And what often happens is if people just try to focus on the bold action, they can get pretty stressed as they do it. They often try to do it too fast. I'm a big believer in gradually building, but they try to do it too fast. They're impatient. They want to get the results. And what they're totally missing is the other piece, which is on my own side or self-compassion or self-acceptance, whatever term I use on my own side, because it it captures a lot of those pieces. It's like, how would you, how would you treat yourself if you were on your own side? How how would you relate to yourself? It kind of shows people what to do with that idea of self-compassion. But that, that's, that part is, you know, so you do get the no, or it doesn't go well. Do you have the skills and the ability? And have you built the capacity to take care of yourself, to soothe your nervous system and not just all on your own, maybe do you have people in your life that you can be vulnerable with and let yourself be seen and known and held? I mean, part of the work that you do, right? is like helping people just not be alone in it. And so there's many ways to take care of ourselves or be on our own side. But what that does is it's kind of like one is the, is like the kind of masculine forward drive energy that's needed. And the other is like the nurturing feminine and you need both, right? To create anything in life, you need both energies. So those two things combined and studied and practiced and generally getting some support to do it and guidance, I found to be absolutely transformative in my own life to where I don't think of myself as having social anxiety. And many clients that I work with don't identify with that label at all. In mm-hmm. fact, they get feedback from people. And when this first happens, they're, they're kind of amused and surprised. And, and then later on, it just becomes like, oh, yeah. But they'll get feedback like, wow, you're such an outgoing person. Or you're such a great conversationalist or something. And they'll come back to the group and be like, oh my God, like you have, they have no idea. And I'll be like, no, 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 you have no idea because they're seeing you now and you're still seeing your old identity. So there's this kind of catch up phase and then they catch up. And so, so that's how to do it now, how to help a partner. Okay. There's kind of two scenarios, right? One scenario is the person actively wants to grow. For me, that would be the ideal scenario. Both me and my wife are extremely growth oriented. That was part of my, you know, my values and sort of a must for me in a relationship. I, I yeah, dated pre- some prerequisite. Prerequisite, man. You're not growth oriented. This is not going to go well. And I, yeah. I had some amazing women who were kind of that way, and they could kind of keep up a little bit with me because I was into it. But I was like, I want someone who meets and exceeds me in this area. And I did. I found a woman who, who taught. She taught workshops for many years and was just like really. And she teaches me every day how to be more workshops are around authenticity and uh, skillful communication and letting go just really, really valuable stuff. And so I'm still learning from her. She's like got these little skills. Just the other day, we're in the kitchen. And while my chronic pain is like basically entirely gone, I'll have these little blips of pain that last like a day or two. And they're nothing like they were. And it'll be fine for a couple of months. And I'm always like tweaking and saying, oh, what led to that? Because I always know it's a stressor or a mindset or perfectionism. But anyway, so I was having one of these the other day 
and I was in the kitchen and one of my kids was asking me a question. I was just a little bit like short with him, you know, cause I was like hurting. And I was like, I don't know later what, you know? And then a couple minutes later, I was like, Hey guys, I'm sorry. I'm just like, my, my body's hurting. And, and she's like, Oh, that is so great that you share that with us. Like, you know, and she kind of coaches me like, Hey, here's what you could say next time. And I'm like, Oh, that's really good. Yeah. I'm going to do that. So I, I need that in a partner. That's the best case scenario. Cause everyone's partner is growth oriented. Then you could say, Hey, let's, you know, be like, not sort of accountability buddy. Like, did you do the thing you did? You said you're going to do the thing. Like, like more spaciousness, more like, tell me more about what it is that you're practicing and learning. I want to know, I want, how can I best support you? You know, I, I love if you could share, if you're, if you're doing these things, you know, or, or practicing this stuff, I'd love if you could share with me some of your wins and your victories, or if you have a setback or something like I, I want to know, I want to know you and this whole journey. And I love that you're doing this. I think it's amazing. You know, give them a sense of significance for doing this. Like, I think this is amazing. Most people won't do this. You know, I love you. Like, so that would be the best case scenario. Now there's another scenario where it's like your partner has social anxiety and they're like, they don't want to touch it. And they may be defensive about it. And they're like, no, I don't like going to those things. I don't want to do that. And I don't like this. And I don't like being around your friends. And, you know, and then it's like any other challenge in a relationship where someone is not willing to grow. I mean, that's going to be an ongoing conversation. Unless you're like, you know what? I'm fine with it. I do my own thing. They do their own thing. I just know I don't, we don't do these things together. And I'm okay. And you truly are okay with it. That's fine. But otherwise, you know, I just was working with a client who had challenges in their love life, their sex life. It's like, yeah, that that's going to be an ongoing conversation. You can't just ignore that one. And so then it comes back to being really curious with your partner hmm. and not being like, what's wrong with you? You got to fix this or I'm out of here. You know, it's like, what is the impact on you? You know, is it you can't go out as much or they you like to go out, but they're not there or what is it, you know? And so you can kind of explore with them. Like here are things that I notice I long for. And I'm curious, like, do, do you want those things too? No, you don't. Okay. Tell me more. Like, what is it that you want? And you just, you know, you have to kind of go through more of an exploration phase to see, do your values align? And if not, what do you guys do with that? I mean, I think that's, that's more kind of the deep work and in, in intimacy. Awesome. Yeah, I, I know. I know exactly what you mean in terms of finding a partner that's growth oriented. I feel like, I mean, I married like one of the top marriage and family therapists. Nice. <laughs> Period. <laughs> just, just for some, just for fun, you know, just for shits and giggles to see what this life would be like with with somebody who's an expert in marriage and relationships and family therapy. Great. You know, but no, I think it's interesting as you were talking about how we can move through social anxiety or how we start to cultivate the skill, which we talk a lot about within the Mentox community and, and some of the work that we do is that, you know, often we haven't been taught the skills to navigate certain things and social settings, social communication, there's skills that go into that, that if we hadn't, if we didn't develop them earlier on in life, I mean, I think, I can't remember exactly what research was, but I remember reading research about how between the ages of like three and six are some of the most developmental years where we learn a lot of our social interactions with other kids and that that sort of permeates out through the rest of our life. And so if we don't, if we didn't have that sort of formative experience as a kid where we were, you know, maybe we grew up in the middle of nowhere and we didn't really have any friends or we're an only child or, you know, the, the kids that we did hang out with were assholes <laughs> at a very mm -hmm. young age, like we may have had a bad experience. 
but it, what came to me was like, how did I combat that as a, as a, as a kid? Because I never really felt like I fit in, even in, you know, like elementary school, I kind of felt like this odd kid out. And I realized that how I dealt with that social anxiety was being a complete clown, you know, like a complete goofball. And that, mm-hmm. that me being the class clown actually helped me alleviate some of that social anxiety of feeling like I didn't fit in with the other kids. And I remembered, I actually remember this experience. I broke my leg in grade two. And first I had a wheelchair because my leg was broken so badly. And <laughs> I remember ripping through the, the the hallways and like chasing some of the other kids down with the wheelchair, you know, like hunting them down. We would like play this game where I'd chase them down. But it was those types of experiences that actually built this sense of okayness in social settings for me, that that bold action that you were talking about. And for me, it was sort of being that class clown. All right, let's talk a little bit because one of the things that I've I've seen quite a bit in the last year and a half is a rise in social anxiety because of the pandemic, people being afraid to be just be out in public, people being, you know, not really knowing how to interact if if they're, you know, let's say they're not they're like you know the virus is the virus and I'm not really afraid of that and I want to live my life the way I want to live my life, but then not really knowing how to interact with other people because we can feel that there's this social anxiety. And so I'm curious to get your take on how you've seen people's confidence be impacted through this pandemic. And maybe before you answer that question, if you can just define for us how you, yeah, what your definition of confidence is, because I think that word gets used a lot and there's many different iterations of what it looks like. And so I would love to hear what yours is just so that we can, you know, have a solid foundation. Yeah, I mean... I love like if you were to give like a very 30,000 foot view of confidence that that applies to all areas, it would just be the Latin root confides with faith. So to move forward towards anything with faith or trust that it's going to be beneficial or go the way you might hope. That's kind of the the essence that applies to everywhere. So that could be confidence to start a business or confidence to apply for this new job or confidence to ask someone out or confidence to speak up in a group or whatever. Now, then I think if we were to put like maybe a little more specific definition, an area that I focus a lot on is social confidence. And that is the confidence, particularly interpersonally around other people. And that is the the ability to move forward with faith in that arena and to express what you want to express with a belief that it will generally be well-received. And if it is not, that you can handle that. Those, those, both those components need to be true for there to be social confidence. Hmm. And that could show up in every area. That could be assertiveness in conversations. That could be speaking up in work meetings. That could be, you know, being around people that you just met with masks on. I mean, that applies to every time there's interaction with others. So that's that's a big area. And then of course there's there's the confidence in career that might be more related to particular belief in your you know, leadership abilities, or your technical abilities. But another component of, of social confidence or a requirement for that is some, in order to feel like I'll generally be responded well to, there's a certain level seeing yourself as valuable, seeing your presence as valuable. And a lot of people with social anxiety or low confidence have an old belief, an old story, often from upbringing, that I'm not worthy, I'm not desirable, my, my presence is a burden or 
at best dismissible rather than a, than a benefit. Mm-hmm. So that's a big part of the work I do is to help people see that their, their presence is a benefit. And then there's this, all this overcompensation of like, well, in order for my presence to be a benefit, I got to be the smartest and I got to be the funniest and I got to know what to say. And I got to, you know, and there's all this over, you know, correcting from something that's not really even true. I'm really mm-hmm. a problem. No. So how has the pandemic been involved with in this? I think it's been fascinating. I think in general, there at least, and I, I have the most exposure to American culture because I live in, in the United States, but many places that I've been there, there tends to be a part of what creates anxiety for us socially is the cultural field. There's kind of an unspoken energetic soup that we're all in about how you're supposed to behave. And if you step outside of that field, even if no one tells you you're doing something wrong, you will feel uncomfortable. Case in point, if you walk down some city in a year up, you're kind of out farther from New York City, but even where you live, even especially in New York, if someone were to walk down the street naked, they would probably feel pretty uncomfortable. If someone were to walk down the street, it depends on your upbringing. Let's say someone who's kind of a macho man who thinks they're supposed to be, was is walking down the street wearing like a pink tutu, they're going to feel really uncomfortable, even though no one might say anything. But they're like, I'm breaking the rules. I'm breaking what I'm supposed to do. And even before the pandemic, many people, an unfortunately large number of people had this sort of don't talk to people you don't know, concern or fear, a little bit of wariness, a little bit. Why? What what are you doing? You're breaking a rule talking to me. And I know this because a lot of the students that I work with and stuff, we, we, we would, I would teach them how to do something called friendly greetings, which is to walk down a busy street and say hi to people. Now, as soon as someone breaks that norm and does it in a warm way, a lot of people break out of the norm too. And they're like, Mm. Oh, hi. How's it going? You know, another programming kicks in there. But in the absence of someone leading that way, and so I teach people who have social anxiety to actually become social leaders. But when they, in the absence of someone leading that way, the default is a little bit wary, a little bit kind of insular. And some of this might just be, you know, people are in dense population centers and there's sort of like this crowding, crowding effect. But anyway, since the pandemic, that's intensified to a large degree. And so now there's not only this kind of a general, like, I don't know you, now it's kind of like, I don't know you and you could kill me, right? There's sort of this this sort of insidious, ever-increasing fear of the virus, you know, and, and, and it goes beyond kind of maybe what is medically happening. It goes into just, we've learned like breath is dangerous. Unmasked people are, you know, it's killing, you know, it's like, so there's all these ideas in there. And, and so what happens is, now there's also an intensification of the rules of how you should be are no longer now just preferences. Like, I think you shouldn't talk to strangers because it's annoying or whatever. Now it's like, I think you should be wearing a mask in this situation or that situation, or else I think you're a terrible person who's killing people. And I might even tell you about it. And if I don't tell you about it verbally, energetically, and you know, non-verbally, I might shoot you one. You know, so But this leads to, and that may or may not happen, but that, that could be happening at any time. And so that leads people to, I think, just be more, especially people with social anxiety who might be more sensitive to, to these things, to be, to be more, more on edge. And so one thing that I, I do, and I've done, I've done this for years with friendly greetings, and I say hi to people everywhere I go. I've been doing that for years, ever since I discovered this technique. And you know, it was when I was in my training from uh, David Burns, who's a cognitive therapist. So maybe, you know, 15 years of this. 
<laughs> I'll just say hi to people everywhere I go. And and, I'll, and I do it now. I do it with masks on. I'll be walking on the street and like, how's it going? You know? And I find a lot of people still respond positively to me because I'm still piercing through. And part of my intention there is to be like, hey, through, like, we don't need to dehumanize each other. Like, you're still a human under that mask. And you have all the same fears and hopes and dreams and feelings that I do. Maybe they're slightly different, but they're 99% the same. You know, you want to be happy. You don't want pain to happen to you and your family. You want to feel like your life has meaning. You know, we, we have that similar, in similar, in similar. So yeah, that's some of what I noticed from the pandemic. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. No, I appreciate that because I think you you give some like tactical pieces that people can implement, which I think is important as well. And yeah, I mean, I think I've also observed kind of the same thing, whereas people have become more insular. And one of the things that I talked about at the beginning of the pandemic was that isolation equals amplification, that when we isolate ourselves, it amplifies everything that's already going on within us. And we start to um, ramp up that experience. And so if we have social anxiety before, when we isolate ourselves, coupled with you know new social rules that we're, that we're a part of, it inevitably creates an amplification of what we experience internally. And so to be aware of that is to is to help ourselves break free from the those confines that get pressed upon us. But I and I do think that, you know, going back to your definition of confidence, the the only piece that I would love to add in based on my own experience is that confidence is almost like this experience that we are okay and that we belong. And mm. that, as you said, we're a contribution in some way, shape, or form. Mm. And I think that's hard for people to find, but it's also so important. You know, it says mm. something about you and your life that you've gone on the journey to find how you are a, a contribution to the people around you, whatever that might be, whether it's mm. you contribute humor or insight or, you know, stillness and presence or whatever that contribution is. I remember a mentor of mine years and years ago saying like everyone has a gift but not everyone actually wants to find it right because it's buried underneath all of this bullshit and so to go on that journey to find a part of that gift that you bring into conversations and social environments is actually a part of the confidence that i think a lot of people are looking for and so i loved that that component of what you were saying is like you know what are you giving into social spaces mm, so I love awesome man. Yeah, thank you for sharing that well, thanks so much for, for joining me today. Where can people learn more about you and your work? I know you've written some incredible books, one of which is Not Nice, Stop People Pleasing, Staying Silent and Feeling Guilty. I think that's a great book. It's, it's got some incredible reviews. So where can people learn more about you? Yeah, I mean, the best hub to find out everything is at my website, which is just draziz.com, D-R-A-Z-I-Z.com. I have a free ebook that's pretty extensive there that goes through the five steps. One of them is the bold action part. One of them is being on your own side. There's a few more in there as well that just people can get. That's followed up by a video series where I teach the five steps all absolutely free. I have a YouTube channel, you know, hundreds of videos that are free, podcasts, hundreds of podcast episodes, all that's absolutely free. And you can find out about it on the website. And then there's the books on Amazon and Audible, which are you know very, very low cost. And then if people want to go further, I have online event immersions that I do and also year-long group coaching programs. So, you know, my goal is, I call it mass liberation is like, how do we spread this to as many people as possible? So thank you for having me on this show so we can, you know, spread this to more people. So my goal is that no one thinks like, oh, I'm stuck like this. Mm. And this is how I got to live my life because that's where I lived. And that's more painful than 
not being able to ask someone out or, you know, feeling like you don't fit in. I mean, those are painful experiences, but to feel like that I'm stuck that way forever, that pain, I know it so well. And that's, you know, that's the contribution to the world, right? It's like, let, let's see if we can reach every single one of those people. So Good, the man. website's a great place to start. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. And for anyone that's out there, you could take on the challenge. Uh, what would you call it? The, the friendly greeting? Was the friendly friendly greeting? greetings. Yeah. 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 You just walk down a street, you know, a fair amount of foot traffic could be in a mall, could be out in a you know busy area. And you just literally just each person you walk by, you just, and you got to, you know, especially now with masks on, if, if people are masked, depends on where they are, you just got to make it loud enough, you know, so it over it's noticeable. And usually a hand gesture helps because it kind of gets people's attention. And it's just, hey, how's it going? How you doing? Hi there. And it's amazing. It, it is amazing what it will do for you, for others. You'll see your own sensitivity to like micro rejection. Like, why didn't that person say hi back? And, and wow, what, what a gift to, to, to grow that. And then also to spread some of this like humanity and connection in the world. Awesome, man. Awesome. Yeah, I remember like a month long period in my life where I committed to just having an honest, how you doing? So wherever I went, if people asked me how I was doing in that moment, I committed to giving them the the like real honest answer. Mm. And I remember walking into a Starbucks one morning and I had a pretty rough night before with a woman that I was dating. And so I walked in and the barista was like, how you doing? And I was like, actually, I'm feeling pretty shitty this morning. Yeah, it's just like like garbage, actually. And how are you? And she was like, I'm not having a good morning either. And I was like, okay. And then we had this conversation. I was like, well, what's going on for you? And we had this like five-minute conversation because like 6.30 in the morning, there's nobody in, in the coffee mm -hmm. shop. And it was just, I, and that continued to happen where I like practiced this honest greeting, you know, and it was, it was such a good way for me to just mm -hmm. be real with people that I that I never met. Sometimes we can make the most incredible connections with strangers, you know, and, and yeah. that can really support us when it comes to social environments, because it reminds us. And I think as, as you've been talking about throughout this entire piece is that reminds us of our humanity, you know, it connects us to our humanity in a time where people are somewhat very disconnected from that humanity and looking for reasons to dehumanize other people. So thank you so much, Dr. Aziz. I appreciate your time and all the work that you are doing. Uh, for everyone that is out there, definitely go and check out his work, books, workshops. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. Very grateful for everyone that did recently. We have been moving up, up the charts and are ranked like top 25 in Canada right now. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Mm -hmm.